Hi there, and welcome to a special edition of The Dish Cast. We're interviewing someone who has really not been interviewed very much over the last few years, yet who's had an extraordinary impact on British and thereby global politics in a way. An incredibly controversial, polarizing figure, Dominic Cummings, who was the man who put together the Leave campaign, the Brexit, pro-Brexit position in the British referendum, and who went on to help Boris Johnson in office secure a huge majority in the House of Commons and subsequently has left the Boris Johnson uh, government and is now actually one of its uh, serious critics. He was also there during the entire COVID chaos at the beginning and as it continued in that year. Dominic, I'm incredibly grateful for you to come here and chat. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on, Andrew. You'll also probably, American listeners notice, an accent that Dominic has, and it's, it's, from, it's from Durham, which is in the northeast of England. You may remember Fiona Hill, the person who testified <coughs> about the Ukraine shenanigans, has a similar accent, but anyway, just translating a little bit. Tell us how and where you grew up and, and how that how that formed you. So I grew up in a place called Durham, which is about 250 miles or so from north of London, up in the northeast of England. I went to a little state school primary there, and then I went off to um, Poland for a couple of years. My father um, got a job working in Poland in 1978-79. So I had an odd experience of living in communist Poland, and then came back, went to school in Durham, and then went to University of Oxford, lived in Russia for a couple of years, and then came back to England and, and started getting involved in politics in January 99 to try and stop Tony Blair taking Britain into the Euro. What was the impact of living in Russia and Poland on you? Does that, was that, a, was that a, an influence in the way that your political ideas developed? I'm not sure if Poland really was. I was, I think, six, six, sort of six to seven at the time. Um, Russia was definitely a hell of an experience, I think. For, I think I think it was for anybody who was anybody who was in Moscow, kind of 1994, 1995, 1996, just after the Soviet Union collapsed, I think, knows it was a very, very weird place. There was a sort of incredible energy to it, completely kind of broken and mad in, in, in all sorts of ways. And this sort of huge theft was going on as well obviously, of, as the kind of, a lot of the KGB moved into organized crime and just started ransacking the country in all sorts of ways. And it was the first time as, as an adult I'd seen, seen a country like that, seen an environment like that, where I suddenly realized I was working, I tried to work on a few projects and I kind of naively arrived trying to work on these things, assuming that the people there were you know, trying to make the, the enterprise work in the way that you would do if you were in London. Only to find that, uh, in fact, they were really engaged in trying to rip everything off, steal it, get all the money abroad, bankrupt it as soon as possible whilst grabbing what they could. And sort of realising that when you're 21, 22, that this, the world can work in completely different ways to what you uh, have been brought up to expect and what you see in the kind of normal Western world, so to speak. That was certainly very interesting and probably equipped me quite well for politics. 
Right. Because you've sort of entered somewhat chaotic, though nothing like as chaotic as, as, as that. What about your, your, your state school and all that? How did that form you in any way? Was it, was it formative for you? Was it, were you, did it, did it, right? Did you become a conservative in, in, if you can call you that in, in high school or in university? No, I don't, I don't, to be honest, Andrew, I can remember very little of my childhood. So my childhood is not really very, I don't really think of, I don't really, it's hard for me to answer questions like that. All I can really think is that my parents are both very big readers and learn to read early. And I read a lot of adult books early. When I think back to my childhood, that's probably the most influential thing that I can remember anyway. Well, your parents um, but also are I wouldn't, in... I wouldn't call myself conservative either though. No. I, I realized as soon as I said it, that was probably a, a misnomer. What would your parents do, if you don't mind my asking? My mum was a special needs teacher, uh, and no. my father was a, a sort of professional manager, and he would um, manage manage projects, whether it was building oil rigs or buying companies and turning them around, starting new companies, things like that. And what did your first job out of, out of Oxford what, what, what was that? And, and how did it lead you to the, your campaign against Tony Blair's attempt to bring us into the Europe, bring the US, UK, sorry, I should avoid us and <laughs> bring the US into, and bring the UK into the Europe? Well, my, fir my first job after leaving school was actually working in um, a nightclub that my, was owned by my dad and my, and my uncles. And I think that actually was probably quite, quite influential in terms of politics, because I spent a lot of time talking to the people who came in and also to the staff. And I would sort of do, I would work on that while I was at Oxford during the holidays. So I had a very, very kind of mixed experience where during term time, I would, I had two of the best teachers, I think, probably in the world. I had a, a wonderful historian called Norman Stone who taught me a lot of history. Oh. And I had another wonderful historian called Robin Lane Fox who taught me a lot of classical Greek history and Alexander the Great and Thucydides and things like that. So I would sort of spend eight weeks doing that and then go back and spend four weeks in this quite rough nightclub dealing with a very different kind of environment. Um, and I think that was probably quite good for me, actually, and quite good for, uh, in terms of trying to figure out politics as well. Why do you say that? Just because of the, the, the way in which elite discourse can seem completely dis distanced from real life? That is definitely one very clear lesson yeah because obviously you know you're at oxford you're reading i was reading ancient modern history you watch the news you watch politics going on you listen to very intelligent educated people talking about it and then you realize that actually um, millions of people in the country are actually not hearing it not hearing politics in anything like the same way and i think it was probably very useful to me to have that experience very early mm. and i think it definitely helped me when i then got involved with the euro campaign Tell us about that. So you 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 then discovered that the United that Blair is part of his you know quite extraordinary policies of integration into the EU, including freedom of movement in a more dramatic way than other countries even in the EU. Tell me how you how that really bothered you and what your concerns were with about the euro and the UK joining it. So I just come back from from Russia where I learned a lot, but everything I'd done had been essentially a complete and total failure. So I come back to England trying to figure out what I would do with my life. And by a series of happenstances, I ended up being in, getting involved with this campaign in January 99. It just seemed to me from reading 
from the history of it and watching what the arguments were, it struck me that that kind of multinational currency union project is very hard to pull off historically. They tend to crack up. Of course, the original plan, the Monet Delors, sorry, the Delors um, Mitron coal plan in the 80s, of course, was that the euro would be a, a sort of Leninist spur to the creation of a political union. That they would do the to create something the opposite way to how they, these things normally evolve historically. They would create the euro first, and the fact that, that it was institutionally complete would be a spur and, and an impetus to then create the the federal political superstructure. That was the original conception in the eighties, and it struck me as a very risky, very risky thing to do in all sorts of ways, and something that would probably be better off for Britain to stay out of. Were you thinking of? Like the Zollverein in, in in Germany and Austria, or you know Bismarck's attempt to 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 unite Germany or reunite Germany, uh, no, unite Germany around a a common customs union and then a common currency, and and that was part of the. But of course, then he was dealing with German speaking people in a very relatively homogeneous cultural climate. It wasn't exactly the same thing as EU wide attempt. But I want to get at why yeah. you were drawn to this question. I mean, because there are many things that you can see in the world that you're like, I don't like that. I think that's crazy or stupid. But you you saw this as an important question. What was the underlying importance of it for you? Well, it was a sort of mix of things. It see it seemed that it was a much bigger deal that the whole Euro project and the direction in which it would take the EU and whether Britain would be part of it and everything else, it just seemed to be a much bigger issue than the normal um, day-to-day issues of politics. But also it was just really very coincidental that I, it was a time of my life where I was looking around for something to do and this thing happened to come up. So it was sort of historically, I was interested in the issues historically. I'd read and studied a lot about Bismarck and kind of 19th century history at Oxford. And so I was interested in it. It seemed to me like a bad idea. And I was kind of interested in the whole question about campaigns and like how they really, how they really worked. So it just seemed, it was a sort of natural fit. But it was very shocking to me, actually, the first year, because the first few months, because I thought, I think like most people, originally i thought kind of two key things i thought i sort of assumed that the people in charge in politics were generally serious people and kind of knew what they were doing and studied things hard and i also thought that almost sort of by definition they'd be very interested in what how people really thought about issues and i discovered in the first year that actually both of those things are completely false in britain at least i realized that the people in charge in all sorts of senior positions didn't actually have a clue what they were doing And also I discovered that when we started doing research on how people actually thought about the euro, it turned out that what people actually thought was completely different to what the MPs thought they thought. And so in a very naive and student-like way, I ran along to all of these people and said, look, look, we've done all this work and we've figured out that actually we've all been completely wrong. We've all been barking up the wrong tree. We've had this mental picture of how people think, but actually they don't think like that at all. Here's what they actually think. And of course, I expected them to say, wow, this is very interesting. It's great. We've done you guys have done this work. Let's change our plans and whatnot. But of course, the opposite happened. They were all very cross. No no one wanted to listen. What what did you point out that particularly upset them? And what was the big difference between their opinion of the euro and your regular person's view of the euro? 
there was sort of there were things like well there was sort of questions I guess there were issues, so to speak, and there was also questions of kind of vocabulary and psychology. So, for example, they were obsessed with the word sovereignty and mm-hmm. didn't want to be told that people didn't really understand what the word sovereignty meant. Now, actually, of course, there are lots of politicians who don't actually know what the word sovereignty means. So I don't mean that normal voters are dumb, but there were things like that. You know, people, a lot of people thought, well, is that something to do with the Queen? Now, what they actually, what the actual argument was about was about the question of democratic control. But so there were sort of there were language questions like that. But then there were also issue questions where people were actually interested in things like cost of living and stuff like that. How will it affect? Will all the prices go up like like they did with metrification in the 70s, for example? Well, nobody in Westminster was talking about questions like questions like that. And people in Westminster, for example, a lot of Tory MPs assumed, well, if you say let's talk about tax harmonisation, because that will be bad. People will be scared of tax harmonization and therefore they'll oppose it. But then we figured out talking to normal people that they actually their experience of European taxes was all indirect taxes on things like fags and beer, which were lower. So actually tax harmonization sounded quite good because it they thought, oh, all our fags and drink will get cheaper. You know, so there were lots of nuances like that that we would we started to realize that the way in which MPs were talking about it just didn't either didn't connect or actually had negative results in terms of persuading people of our point of view. Just a note of information for our readers, our listeners: <laughs> fags in Britain mean cigarettes. That <laughs> the homosexuals oh, weren't getting more expensive in Britain. <laughs> the homosexuals were not more expensive. Were not more expensive. <laughs> sorry, yes, fags is a kind of northern is a northern <laughs> slang word for um, for cigarettes. Yeah, I know. It's just it's one of these words that gets lost in translation. But the homosexuals are getting very pricey. <laughs> back then. Anyway, no, <laughs> go, go, go on, go on. So, so people were thinking in much more practical, simple terms. I mean, they were thinking about their daily lives, whether this would increase. They weren't, and if they would thought about things like sovereignty, they thought, well, that's to do with the queen. I don't really understand that. And so there was this, and much of what you discovered was what, through focus groups, through through yeah. uh, the we did equivalent a lot of, polling. of you. We did a lot of focus groups, exactly. We did a lot of, I mean, there's nothing sort of at all sophisticated that we, what we did back then. It was just trying to use big, big bog standard tools. Um, and you succeeded in that. You succeeded. We didn't go into the Euro, thank God. And what lessons did you learn from that particular campaign? What were the key elements of the campaign that you think were successful that you learned? Well, I guess, I think the, the thing which it, the thing which it most prompted me to do really was to kind of all re, in a way almost go back and have a kind of second education mm-hmm. because after that episode i then kind of retreated back to my dad's farm and i basically spent two or th- about two or three years just sort of reading about all sorts of things about about decision making about the brain about science about the history of maths about war all sorts of things because it was really driven by this not some, it wasn't really about the Euro issue. I was more, it was more really that I just, the experience of being involved in politics suddenly just made me think the people in charge just like really in fundamental ways don't really have, don't really know what they're doing. And also I don't really know what I'm doing either. Like we're all kind of like operating in this weird fog of people babbling at each other, but not really understanding why. The public doesn't understand what we're talking about. The organizations are kind of decrepit and, and and don't work. So that got me sort of looking at what kind of organizations do work. How do you create great organizations? You know, questions like that. So it really 
so the experience really kind of prompted me to go and just spend a few years really in in in, in, in like another sort of self just sort of reading basically just living on a farm reading sounds like a pretty lovely way to spend a few years seems to me <laughs> we'd all had a few years off in our early years to to just do a, a big deep dive into the into big thinking and big big ideas tell me how that then became at least the beginning of your campaign to get britain out of the eu that's a much bigger project than just simply saying let's not go into the euro that's a that's a defensive measure against something that was going to be hard to do anyway to yeah. a much more aggressive measure to really overturn like 50 years or so of british government policy what mm. gave you the idea that you could get away with that well so i started thinking in general that that so the other thing that happened in that in that in that few years reading was I also started reading a lot more about technology and war and things like that and that also made me much more worried about the state of the world and so I had this combination of increasing worries about these things like pandemics AI robots you know all the sort of normal things that one starts worrying about if you start reading in this way. And also the experience of actually looking at the British government and realizing, my God, right, the idea that this, the, 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 these people and these systems can actually, are going to be able to cope with what's coming at the world is just ludicrous. And the EU was kind of, was a sort of subset of that in a way, you know, that, that I thought, first of all, you can't really, we're not going to be able to reform the, the British system unless you get out of the EU. And also people, in my opinion, have got this wrong idea that, oh, well, we've got this institution for international cooperation in Europe, which is the EU. And that's good. And if you care about things like security cooperation or the future technology, well, don't worry, the EU's got it covered. But it seemed fairly obvious to me anyway that the EU did not have it covered and, and was not the organization that we needed. So yes, my ideas about what needed to happen in Britain were kind of bound up with the fact that it would be very hard to make a lot of the changes necessary whilst you had both well, really all the political parties committed to this kind of the bureaucratic centralism of the of the EU. I then worked in government for about three-ish years, three to four years in the Department for Education, 2010 to 2014. And that kind of strengthened a lot of my views. I actually got to experiment with how do you actually get things done inside a British government department? Why do they not work? how number 10 functions, how the top of the Tory party thinks about the world, all of these things. And also the kind of the way that the EU system actually quietly in lots of hidden ways actually affects how, how Britain's governed. So one small example, but a telling one in a way, you know, you these famous red boxes that all ministers have where they walk around with their official papers in. Well, every night these ministers would open their boxes and they'd get out these papers and there'd be a thing called write-arounds, which are for cabinet ministers to read papers and then sign off their collective agreement. But a huge proportion of these documents was essentially a Potemkin exercise. They're given these papers, they sort of had to read them, they sort of had to sign them. Theoretically, they had the ability to say, I don't give my consent. But if you did that, then what would happen is that the cabinet secretary, the most important official in the country, would call you up the next day and say, are you drunk or mad? Why have you not given official consent? Sign your paper and get them in. So you start to see this whole kind of Potemkin structure behind the scenes of how power really works. And then, of course, the ministers go out on TV and they give often very fictitious accounts of why X is happening or Y is not happening. So that experience also very much pushed me towards thinking, the Conservative Party is hopeless. The EU is a very bad force. 
and Whitehall in all sorts of ways has some brilliant, brilliant people in it, but it's also just irredeemably rotten in all sorts of ways as well. Um, so Whitehall, just for were, American listeners, Whitehall refers to the, the official bureaucracy in, in London itself. It's the exactly. same as what we might call the administrative state in, in, in Washington, D.C. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just trying to translate yeah. occasionally because I don't I want people to, to hear that. But that's a, you know, so you're saying essentially that the government by the civil service, as it were, by the permanent entrenched bureaucracy, however smart many of them were, and British civil service has some very good brains in it, I'm, I'm pretty sure, nonetheless, were essentially bypassing democratic channels. This was, a, this was a simply a policy that continued by elites that wasn't really responsive to the needs of ordinary people. And, that, and that this, is, this is not a, a new theme in, in, I mean, anybody who's seen the British series uh, Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister will understand the figure of Sir Humphrey, who, who really runs the entire government in the civil service and his hapless, hapless political puppet that he puts out in front of him. So we understand that. And of course, you know, other yeah. previous governments have, like Thatcher was terribly frustrated with the civil service a lot of the time. You know, I mean, several prime yeah. ministers say this from time to time. Yeah. Uh, but you were saying your experience in the Department of Education persuaded you that really these are the only people that really matter in British politics and they are not that democratically accountable. Is that Would that be too drastic a, uh, uh, a, an idea? Well, it's a, it's a combination of the fact that it's certainly officials are far more powerful than people realise in Britain, despite, I mean, uh, you know, people look at uh, Yes Minister as if it's a comedy, but it really isn't a comedy. So, first of all, officials are much more much more powerful than people realise. The cabinet secretary, the most powerful figure in the official in the country, is must be something like a hundred times more powerful than any cabinet minister apart from the prime minister and, and partially the, the the chancellor. Now, you might say this this doesn't matter if the actual bureaucracies worked well, but on issue after issue after issue, the bureaucratic state is it's been doing an absolutely shockingly bad job. And then when you further entrench that at the supranational level with the EU, where it becomes then fundamentally impossible to do anything, and fundamentally extremely hard to change anything, you know, things like some of the most comical aspects of the common agricultural policy, Britain had been arguing for 50 years to change without success, or, you know, the fisheries and throwing all the fish back in the, in the sea and all that kind of crazy stuff. So you have this combination all together, plus also the fact that the parties are increasingly hopeless as well. This kind of cultural dynamic whereby fewer and fewer able people going into politics, more and more of them going into some combination of maths, computers, money, and steering clear of politics, meant that you also had a kind of decay in the caliber of people, both as ministers and as senior civil servants. And then on top of that, you have this kind of perverse selection effect inside Whitehall where you start off with a lot of really excellent people in their 20s. A lot of the best people have gone by the time they're 40-something because they just can't take the, 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 the system and they see what it's going to do to them. So a lot of the middle management becomes very bad. And then even worse, the senior management over the last 10 years has been truly absolutely appalling in all, to, to a very, very wide extent. So you have all of these, this combination of events or, or kind of forces which make change extremely hard and in some ways actually legally impossible. To give one concrete example, which was a very big deal over the last 18 months, obviously, with COVID, 
is uh, procurement, how the government buys things. I saw in, in Department for Education when it was you know, spending billions on how to on building schools, just how terrible the whole EU system was. Or, and EU, EU law essentially controlled the whole framework by which the British state buys or sells things, which is roughly 250 billion quid a year. And it institutionalizes massive waste, massive delays, huge corruption, and also a kind of a huge structural bias in favor of very big, powerful lobbying companies and lawyers and against small, medium-sized businesses, which really can't get involved in the whole thing. And there's nothing we could really do. You know, you can tweak things at the margins and whatnot, but the fundamental problem is that there's an EU framework and, and, and that, that sets the whole legal foundations for it. So all of these things were kind of bouncing around in my mind when Cameron uh, made, from his point of view, the extremely bad gamble of going for the EU referendum. And so at that point, me and a few others thought, okay, moments like this don't come along very often. The system thinks that it's overwhelmingly likely to win. It's extremely complacent about it. But if we're right, these guys don't actually understand politics nearly as well as they think they do. And therefore, there is a much greater chance to kind of hijack the system, to hack it, and and have a very, you know, with relatively very little money, 15 million quid or so, we could actually have a very dramatic effect on the whole on the whole system and tip the whole thing from one kind of future historical path to another path. That was our that was the basic thinking in summer 2015. And the core motivation was to make government better. I mean, just the government of people and things in Britain to be more adaptive more able to be changed, more competitive, less yeah. constrained. Is that, that, I'd say that was a, what... To simplify it, I'd say there's, there, there, were kind of neg- there was a sort of negative agenda and a positive agenda. The negative agenda was that the EU was causing a lot of trouble. So most obviously on immigration. It, it's a basic feature of EU law, what's called free movement, i.e. anybody who's inside the EU has complete free movement inside, extending even to convicted killers. So you couldn't even, we can't even stop convicted killers coming into the country. Now, my view was that that actually you could have in Britain very widespread agreement for a certain kind of immigration policy, which is modestly pro-immigration, more radically pro-high-skilled immigration than the current system. But that the way in which the EU system was working was driving driving people more and more towards extreme positions on it. And by the time we got to summer 15, immigration was literally the number one priority in in politics in the country. And you could also see it fueling the rise of extremism all across Europe. You know, you had almost literally like a pseudo-Nazi party getting a third of the vote in, in, in Greece, in Austria, things like that combined with the economic problems of Europe. So we thought Europe has a terrible record of dealing with this historically. Um, The answer of Brussels and the party elites everywhere is basically just to say, if you complain about this, you're racist, shut up, it's an EU policy, and you've all just got to suck it up. And the history of this in Europe is extremely bad, and we we should pull the plug on this. And if we take back democratic control, actually what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll kill off We'll kill off UKIP as a political force. We'll kill off immigration as a big issue in British politics and it'll disappear. Now, now, you can look at this empirically. At the time, the Financial Times, The Economist, all of those sort of people said, Dominic, if you win, you will turbocharge Farage and the extremists. Farage will be on a third of the vote. 
immigration debate will be out of control, it will be hysterical. We said, you're completely wrong, you completely misunderstand politics, the exact opposite will happen. Now, if you actually look at all the polling since the referendum, I would say that the vote leave position has been totally vindicated. Attitudes towards immigrants and immigration have improved steadily ever since the referendum. Immigration is no longer a first-tier issue. I wouldn't even say it's necessarily a second-tier issue. There's a bit of an issue at the moment with boats across the channel and whatnot, but it has been changed for the better, really, in the way. So there were negative things like that where we wanted to stop. And then the positive agenda was, we thought, it's such a big deal to get out of the EU, this thing that sets, roughly speaking, half our laws in various ways, it constrains government in so many ways. We've, it'll give us a chance to bounce the whole British state into a different agenda where we can focus on science and technology. We can change a whole set of stupid rules like on procurement and state aid. We can also start to reorient the deep state in security policy towards really thinking hard about issues like the future of autonomous weapons, drones, biological warfare, all of that sort of thing, civil service reform. And also, okay, now a core element of British economic policy has been membership of the single market. That's gone. What's it going to be? We're going to have to really focus on productivity, on skills, on getting rid of our appalling planning system, which we've had since World War II, all of these things. So that was the kind of, there was a kind of yin-yang, stop these negative effects, particularly in immigration, and hopefully try and bounce the agenda of the country into a, into a, into a new path. I want to focus on that a little bit, because essentially what you're saying is that the worries about immigration that were obviously very potent in the, in the referendum and were essentially, were essentially partly because people felt they didn't have any control over it. Yeah. And that therefore they couldn't really determine their own future. But, and if you were in government and showed that you could control it, far from empowering the far right, you would actually neuter it and in fact co-opt it. That the best way to tackle anti-immigrant feeling is to tackle immigration and to ensure that it is clearly under the government's control. And this is something that's so hard to get across in the U.S. because the minute you talk about restricting immigration, you are a racist, you are a white supremacist, et cetera, et cetera. And you never get yeah. quite past that point. But yeah. the point is that the, the Brexit, far from being this harbinger of anti-immigrant sentiment and xenophobia, has actually reduced that in British culture and has sort of slightly neutralized that issue as that vital to Britain's future, which is, which is completely counterintuitive to what you would think if you were just reading Correct. the I wouldn't US even press, say I wouldn't say slightly neutralized it. I would say, you know, it's really, to w w w with one single exception, which has bubbled up this year, of this issue about boats, the French pushing all of these asylum seeker boats across the, across the channel, with that single exception, immigration's largely disappeared from 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 British debate since over the last eighteen months or so. Um, and people here were staggered that, for example, Boris Johnson. We'll get to him in a minute. That Boris uh, offered visas to Hong Kongers. Now, a, a racist, xenophobic government would not be inviting the how the entire population of Hong Kong to come live. It would have been impossible if we hadn't done Brexit as well, because people would right. have seen it as just the latest example of the politicians just being completely clueless. Because it, it, the the feeling very strongly in 2015-16 was 
I can give you, you know, I, I would go and sit and talk to regular people outside London and they would say things that like, Dominic, look at the TV pictures from the last week of the Channel Tunnel, right? The Channel Tunnel entrance is like 50 meters across and they're all just fucking running through. It's 50 meters across. What does that tell you? It tells you the politicians don't want to control it. If the bloody thing is 50 meters across, you know for sure they could stop that happening, right? We know they could. They don't want to. They don't want to control it. So there was this very strong feeling of the country can't control it and the politicians don't want to control it. And they've just kind of given up and they've handed the whole issue off and just say, oh, well, it's nothing we can do because it's all in Brussels. And it was driving people absolutely crackers. And unsurprisingly, you know, when you have some very prominent cases where literally you had like child killers, the response from government is, sorry, there's nothing we can do. We have, you know, we had to let them in. People just go, these people have completely lost their minds. And it kind right. of connects to issues around terrorism and national security things and, you know, and all of these sorts of things. It's like, well, the people in charge actually are not fulfilling their core function, which is trying to keep us safe. And that, of course, does then fuel, if you've got all the mainstream parties parroting this bullshit, then, of course, it opens the door across Europe to, well, political entrepreneurs who are going to be the only people who say sensible things. And that's an extreme. We've seen that in, in European history before. And it's extremely dangerous in Europe when the only people saying sensible things are ruthless political entrepreneurs. Yeah, was, David Frum has a, has a line that if, if liberals don't enforce borders, fascists will. And, and it's roughly your position that, in fact, the responsibility of any government is to ensure the integrity of the borders of the country. It seems to me pretty big. I thought Trump's most potent message was if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. Yep. And however crudely he put it, what you're describing is exactly what happened here with Trump emerging since the Republicans and Democrats had a kind of weird alliance over allowing unrestricted immigration into the country. We're not interested in really policing the southern border. Now, it's a lot harder than 50 meters tunnel, but it's, they still had no interest in it. The wall was this incredible symbol over here because it seemed like someone wanted to stop people coming in for the first time. My view is yeah. if you would reassure them on that, it didn't matter that much. You would shift the politics of this and take immigration off the table and be able to, to talk about other questions. But that has not happened. Trump was, well, Trump did a few things that really did prevent stuff. And then COVID, of course, changed the immigration situation completely. But since then, we're back to absolutely where we were. And, and again, where we were is that if you mention it, you're, you're a white supremacist. Tell, tell me, what was the it main me reason? It's extraordinarily you stupid, though, for the Democrats to, I mean, I'm not at all sort of following American politics very closely, but just a little bit that I see at the moment of the border situation, the border situation being complete chaos, similar to Britain in summer 2015. And a lot of Democrats, as you say, their response when people say, well, are you guys going to get a grip of it? Is what do you mean get a grip of it? Are you racist? Well, well like it's, it's your fault for voicing concerns. Is a, You can't have a stronger combination more likely to put Trump back in the White House. Yeah, and, and Biden's lowest ratings are on immigration. I mean, they are really, yeah. they're in the 30s. The people don't like what's going on. How And Democrats don't. That's the other interesting thing. But it's, I think this points to a very interesting question, Andrew, right? Because I think this is, another, this is like a really fundamental thing. Because there's like a democratic theory, right? Which is, well, because of democratic elections every four or five years, 
politicians won't go too far away from what people want because otherwise they lose their jobs, right? And politicians want to get re-elected. And most people who watch politics kind of think that that theory is true. But one of the things which I think watching politics for 20 years is that theory really is not true. In fact, what happens is most people in politics have far shorter term horizons. They're really looking at their activist base and the media on a very short run time frame. Because from a rational perspective, it's insane for the Democrats to be doing what they're doing because they're massively raising the chances of the of losing control of the House next year and of reviving uh, um, a Republican presidential campaign in 2024. Why is that happening? Because the people at the top are not listening to, you know, Democrat voters on thirty or forty thousand dollars a year in the middle of the country, are they? Who didn't go to college, driving a pickup truck with a gun rack? Who voted for Obama and say, why the fuck aren't people in Washington, sorry, excuse my language, why can't people in Washington sort this out? Yeah, the people in charge are not listening to that. No, in fact, they're condescending to it in the worst possible way. How important was Boris Johnson to the success of the Leave campaign? And I've known Boris for a very long time, not as well recently, uh, but you've seen him intimately. When he made his move. How did you feel that day? Was that a huge plus for you guys? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that it was a huge, huge big deal. You know, it's obviously incredibly hard to get anything close to reality when you're trying to figure out what the cause of a bigger historical event like Brexit is. And particularly when something's as close as that as, as it was, you know, just a few hundred thousand votes could tip it. It's obviously possible to say, but for X, that it wouldn't have happened. And I think there's no doubt, like we had to get, we had to kind of roll sixes a few times and get lucky uh, a few times. I managed to get some brilliant people, half, you know, there's about half a dozen or 10 people who you could put in any organization in the world who would um, make a huge difference to it. That was a big deal. The government made some big mistakes in how they conducted the renegotiation. That was a really big deal. And Boris coming on board was a really big deal because it meant it meant that with the broadcasters, we could get the broad, we could kind of wrench the broadcasters away from covering Nigel Farage and instead covering our message with Boris. Farage, of course, and lots of people in UKIP only wanted to kind of hammer the whole thing in one particular way, which was enthusiastically listened to by maybe 15, 20% of the country, but actively put off millions of other people who we really needed if we're going to win. Over 50% what was, put, what was like putting that. them off? What exactly was putting them off by the far right? A lot of it was the kind of tone of things and just, you know, the way that the way that he would pick up on certain kind of issues. I remember one thing in, in 2015 where he suddenly started talking about, he suddenly started talking about immigration, but from the point of view of HIV people. And like somebody, I can't even remember what it was now, but something to do with HIV screening or something. And I can't now remember any of the details of it, but it was just an example of how a lot most people in the country, including most Labour people, and actually a lot of Remain voting people, agreed with us on immigration. But they didn't want to be, they didn't want to support a campaign that they thought was kind of going out of its way to pick fights with gay people over HIV. It's like, what the hell's that got to do with Brexit? And so it was, you know, there, there were particular arguments and there were particular, there was also a kind of a sort of an approach and a style and a rhetoric and a focus. You know, we've, we've, also, of course, 
we tried to ha have a whole agenda of here's where the country could go to if we get out of this thing. Here's what the future could look different could look differently. We talked a lot about science, technology, government reform, all of these sorts of things. Now the media didn't really want to get involved with that, and Farage definitely didn't want to go get involved with that. All he wanted to talk about was immigration. So I think that Boris coming on board was really crucial for that because. He was a big enough figure that the media would then we could then say to the media, don't put Farage on to 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 talk about this on the six o'clock news. Put Boris on instead. And also, of course, there was this underlying dynamic from the media's perspective, which was, hang on a second, if Leave does somehow manage to 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 win or even just get very close, Cameron could be in big trouble in terms of leading the Conservative Party. Maybe Boris will win. Maybe this weird leave thing could end up being somehow part of a new government. And so that also influenced then how the media treated Boris and our campaign. So all of that was kind of came together in a, in a useful way for us. That's fascinating to me because it suggests that if you had a position that, that held many of the policy views that you're articulating, but didn't have such a polarizing right-wing presentation of it, that seemed to echo a whole bunch of rather reactionary feelings and thoughts, you would do better. I'm just thinking about how Trump did in 2020 and how Youngkin did last couple of weeks ago in Virginia. Yeah. Basically, very similar themes, but a much more credible kind of normal looking Republican that actually seemed to have, and it was wildly successful. He won over a whole bunch of, of Democrats. Uh, it was a big shift on yeah. many of these issues that seem to be coming again from the top down, including new teaching methods for teaching kids about how they're intrinsically racist, et cetera. I think you've hit on an important thing there, like a really important thing that was relevant in the referendum and in our 2019 election win, and also very relevant to what I think is happening in America now. And that is this, that a lot of political pundits, when they talk about politics, they, they write and talk as if voters can be placed on this line from left to right. And there is this thing called the center ground, which is between these two poles. And, you know, and millions and millions of columns are based on this concept. And it's just empirically false. Now, the truth is that swing voters are, in Britain, in British terms, swing voters are more communist than lots of Labour MPs in terms of how they think about things like taxing the rich. And they're more fascist in terms of things like violent crime and punishments for violent criminals and sex criminals than almost anybody in any Conservative MP. And this is definitely true. We, Our whole campaign strategy was based on this. So on the one hand, we talked about immigration, but we were also allied ourselves with the NHS which completely bamboozled the media and completely bamboozled Westminster and said, well, hang on, how can you be to the right of the Conservative Party on immigration and, you know, to the left of Miliband and lots of MPs in terms of the NHS? That doesn't work. And, and our argument was, no, because you guys are thinking of it in terms of the parties, but the party system does not map to how normal people think. And so our campaign was pitched in this place that doesn't make sense on a left-right axis doesn't make sense in a Labour v Tory axis, but we got more votes than anybody's ever got in British history. Precisely now, because it combined, is, it's, it I combined think it's both relevant things, to what right? you're talking 
about with Trump and the future of the Republican Party. There is a space where the Republican Party could be eye-wateringly tough on immigration, eye-wateringly tough on violent crime, also be tough on all kinds of privileges and tax code breaks to the super rich and Goldman Sachs and all this, you know, et cetera, et cetera, in a way that you'd have Democrats who voted for Obama in, 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 in 2012 say, well, actually, I agree with him on the border and I agree with him on violent crime and I agree with the economic agenda. Whilst the Democrats in watching MSNBC are all thinking, this, oh, this is insane. Like, you know, how does this gender fit together? It's incoherent, they'll say. Whereas, in fact, of course, it's if you, if you were to sum it up as sort of rather broadly culturally conservative in a way and economically what we used to call leftist, it's a devastating combination in today's politics. It's, it's what people actually kind of want because we is, keep seeing everywhere. It is. I, I, would make, I would make one kind of tweak to that, though, in that I think that the economic agenda that you do, if you really want to if you really want to have an agenda which is which both works electorally and also addresses the, the future of the country. The economic agenda has to be a weird kind of mix, I think. It has to be, on the one hand, actually strengthening competitive markets in all sorts of ways. So getting rid of a whole bunch of crazy shit on zoning and things like that so that people can actually build stuff. But also like, systematically attacking the privileges of the rich, undeserved privileges of the rich, whether it's hedge funds, investment banks, et cetera, et cetera. So, even within the split, I'd say there's another split in the economic thing where you kind of go both ways, whether at the moment the Republican Party sticks up for a lot of very big monopolist interests against small business, against entrepreneurs, against the startup world. So in this kind of agenda that I would embrace, I would have a party which is pro-startup, pro-entrepreneur, pro-zoning reform, to the right of Trump on violent crime, incredibly tough on the border, and also systematically attacking the privileges of the rich right through the legal system and the tax code, whacking corporate lawyers, you know, wars on lawyers, very good. You know, So again, it would, it would seem a very odd combination of things, I think, in Washington, but I think it would, I think it would generally be good for the country, and it would also be a winning coalition. It'd be a fascinating experiment for a primary candidate next, you know, in 2024 to sort of put together a rather eclectic position like this, which is actually, I think, very coherent with respect to what the public actually wants and see if it could work. I wonder whether that was more be, be more likely among the Republicans than the Democrats. Um, but who, who knows at this point? Tell us. I suspect it seems the Democrats have kind of a sort of so overwhelmed at the moment by the craziness from Ivy League universities, it might be impossible for them to to kind of face reality. I know it's Dave, there's a guy called David Shaw who worked for Obama who keeps chirping up, telling the Democrats that what they're doing is crazy, but everyone just seems to ignore him. Not just ignore him, but fire him and get him... Yeah, quite. Uh, get him banished. Cancel him. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the impulse for internal critique at this point, which is shut the fuck up and go away. Even yeah. when these people keep being proven basically right. Not only that, but not just calling that, but saying they're also racists or somehow engaging in white supremacy when Shaw is just simply being an empiricist about this. He's about as left-wing as you can get and making the argument that people actually don't like rioting, which is all he was saying. Was enough yeah. to get him fired, for God's sake. I know, I mean, I, at crazy. the same time, I was told I, last summer I couldn't use the word riot with respect to what was going on in places like Kenosha as the place was burning down. I mean, that's the level of disconnect you have. Now, 
Yeah. Boris Johnson, let's talk about him a little bit because he's obviously a, you know, a, a complicated character with some strengths and some real weaknesses. You, you've really, you've done a sort of Ann Coulter on Trump with him as much as you, you in some ways were critical to his victory and were very close to him after he took over, after the, the Theresa May interlude, shall we call it, sort of interlude of doing nothing at all. And yet you're now really quite vituperative in your criticism. Tell me what you think of his strengths to start with. Well, I think, as you said before, he's a, very, he's, he's a much, much more complex character than most people in politics. He's, very, he's a very odd, odd, odd guy, and, he, and therefore he doesn't fit normal, kind of normal categories. He is both far more incompetent and useless than people realise, and far more ruthless and able to get certain things done people realize and it's very very odd and hard for people to kind of cope with this i think and he kind of flips from mode can you give me an example of each mode to mode can you give me yeah can you well so for example during the during the constitutional crisis sorry i lost you there for a second andrew no no, no. i'm just saying if you give us an example of of the one and then the other i mean in which he was in which he was an idiot and in which he was also ruthless like if you give us an example of each it would help clarify that i think so during during the constitutional crisis over Brexit back in in summer 2019, when we took over, the general sort of consensus was, well, well the government's just stuck. There isn't any way through. This Parliament's proved that there's no majority for anything. But, you know, uh, Boris is kind of doomed because he's not whatever he does, he's not going to be able to get anything anything through Parliament. And we came up with a plan of doing various things to try and change the political weather. One of them, two of them were that we prorogued Parliament and just sent all the MPs home. And when some of them rebelled against this, 21 of them rebelled against this, I said to Boris, fire them all. And I think no other Conservative leader would have done that because the howling from the establishment and from the media was so intense. People literally thought we'd gone completely insane when we did that. They're like, well, you've always got no parliamentary majority anyway, and now you've fired 21 people, so you've just completely snookered yourself in, term, in parliamentary terms. Only mad people or idiots could possibly have done that. Boris is the only person, I think, certainly the only person who had any conceivable chance of winning the leadership, who would have done some of the things that we suggested to do. And he did it because of an extreme ruthlessness. He did it because him and his girlfriend had a very, very strong view that they knew that they were on the razor's edge of peril and they knew there was a reasonable chance that he could be the shortest run prime minister ever or in 300 years or something. And he didn't want to do that. And therefore he was prepared to be extremely tough and extremely ruthless in a way that, uh, and to risk the rage of the establishment in a way that I don't think anybody else would have would have done was that a a, a, a a brazen assault on the constitution the uh, the proroguing of parliament no i don't think did so. he think I of think it that it was, way okay no i just thought i thought of it as you know there's a great line from bismarck he used to say with a gentleman a gentleman and a half and with a pirate a pirate and a half and we were in a situation where the mps had voted overwhelmingly to have this referendum They'd overwhelmingly said no second referendum, only one, and the result will hold for a, re for a generation. 
And then they spent three years, a lot of them, trying to undo that. And from my perspective, including ripping up all kinds of constitutional precedents going back hundreds of years in the, in the process uh, and trying to legislate to direct the conduct of foreign policy using legislation on the floor of the House of Commons, which had, had no constitutional precedent in, in centuries. So my, my perspective on it was there really isn't, you know, there's a lot of hot air from the Remain establishment complaining about our tactics, but you're the guys who literally promised to have a democratic vote and are now trying to undo it. And that that is um, a much bigger deal that, you know, essentially two, two can play it who can play that game was my view. If you're going to start ripping up all of these constitutional precedents in order to overturn the biggest democratic vote in our history, then I'm justified in overturning these constitutional conventions in order to try and preserve the biggest democratic vote in our history. That was my attitude. Right. Of course, you you run the risk of that just simply continuing ad infinitum until the constitutions are pretty much a dead letter. But I guess that didn't happen, essentially. It didn't happen. We... Our plan worked. We had a, we had a, we 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 forced through a deal. We forced an election. The people spoke. The referendum decision was confirmed, and 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 Brexit was done as it should have been. And the British Constitution actually, in its flexibility, turned out to just just about be able to cope. Yes, well, it does have more flexibility than the American, I think. Partly because it's you know it's essentially a system of uh, an accumulation of pragmatic decisions over the centuries. So there you are. You have taken on this really unlikely referendum and won it. You have also, by a series of maneuvers, gotten this otherwise completely dead in the water parliament changed to a new parliament with through an election with Boris Johnson. With the, I was over there when it was happening. I was watching the messaging, and it was essentially get Brexit done, let's get this over with, let's move forward. The public was exhausted with it. They definitely wanted to get the thing past them. You won one of the biggest majorities in the Commons, and now you're no longer there. Why did you, why did you find it necessary to quit? Well, and why would Boris let you? I mean, you, have, you were the architect of his entire late political career, and without you, it would not have happened. He'd have probably been a, a fixture on the speaking dinner party circuit for the rest of his life. And David Cameron would be cruising to whatever he was cruising to. So what happened? Well, it was a funny, it was an odd mix of things. I think as soon as the election was out the way in, in January, within weeks, there were already very big red flags about, about, about how he was thinking. In, in mid-January, He'd been banging on about a whole bunch of media stories. And I said to him one morning, you're literally only in this office because we won the election a few weeks ago. And we, were, we only won the election a few weeks ago because we ignored the media. The media doesn't understand politics. It doesn't understand government. It's deranged. And we won by having a plan and sticking to it and not being around by the media on an hourly daily basis and the insanity of Twitter. Now that we've done that, we've got a majority of them. We don't have to worry about election for four years. Why the fuck are you spending all of your time rabbiting on at me about what's on TV today in the media? Like we didn't do that when we were in an incredibly tight political battle with no majority and an election coming, right? So why the fuck would we now start focusing like that. It's completely insane, completely insane. What we should be doing now 
days into a new parliament is actually focusing on the big questions facing the country. I'm not going to spend my time arguing with the Daily Telegraph or whoever all day and every day. What we need to do is grip the government machine, figure out our priorities, drive things through the system, change the system as we go. And he said, no, 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 Dominic. Terrible, terrible mistake. We can't, we can't start taking that, that attitude towards the media. And we ended up having this big argument and we, are, and we, argue, we started arguing about priorities. And he said in front of these officials, he said, stop talking to me about priorities. Priorities are a trap. They're a trap to control my, my desires. I have a million priorities and I want everything to be a priority. And above all, no hard choices. And it was a sort of, it was like a sort of the, it was like the sort of kryptonite for being a serious government. I'd been saying to him, don't focus on the media, focus on priorities. If you haven't got priorities, the system, you know, you can't get anything done. And inevitably, focusing on high leverage priorities means hard choices. And he was basically saying no. And essentially, it came down to, I think, I had a picture of what, where the government should be going, what the big questions were that we should be focusing on, and a style and a way of changing how the system worked. And he essentially just wanted to enjoy himself, I think. He, he saw it as very much, I've done all the hard work, I've had six months of hell, I've been bullied by you and your team in what to do every day. I haven't been able to enjoy myself. I haven't been able to do what I want. I've actually made loads of enemies. Now I want to enjoy myself. I want to enjoy the big houses that I've got achieving in, in checkers. I want to make make friends again with all my mates in the media. And I just want to have fun. And I don't want to be told by you every day, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do the other, especially when that means annoying a whole bunch of powerful people. So I think so right from the very beginning, you could see that we were kind of January was already difficult and we were already thinking in different ways. And then, of course, the covid horror show struck and everything completely collapsed. The whole center of power in the British state completely imploded. And actually, in lots of ways, no, he definitely made mistakes, but it also imploded for reasons that were not, not to do with him. And but after that, again, really, what 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 went wrong was. My attitude after that from May onwards was, okay, the state's completely collapsed. It's completely vindicated what me and other people have been saying about Whitehall for many years. Now is the moment to actually grip this whole thing in principle. Secondly, if we don't grip it, we're going to have another total massive shit show all winter and thousands more people are going to die unnecessarily. So we have to actually, like we haven't got any option. We've got to fire a bunch of people. We've got to hire a bunch of people. We've got to close a bunch of fucked up failing organizations. We've got to create a bunch of new things that can actually get things done. The vaccine task force, of course, was one of the things that was going around them. And he essentially undenarred from May until October, kind of going backwards and forwards, sometimes moving my way and firing a few people and sometimes kind of boomeranging back the other way. But it really, it really kind of came to a head and it became clear, actually, he just didn't want to go in that direction. He wanted to just to try and patch up relations with, with Whitehall, 
not fire any of the useless people around who'd done such a terrible job and somehow and also he got into this deluded mentality of there won't be a second wave covid's out the way i should never have done the first lockdown there's not going to be a second wave you're trying to you know you're forcing me to make do all these things which will be very difficult for me politically but why i don't need to do it and of course me and others were saying you do need to do it you're completely demented if you think that there's not going to be a second wave it's it's all going to be an absolute nightmare. So all of these kind of arguments bubble together with COVID, with and the overall fundamental direction. And also our personal relations got trickier and trickier as this went on. And then in the background, on top of all this, you also had the fact the factor of his girlfriend saying, essentially, she actually understood Boris very well. She was actually in favour of me coming in in summer 2019. And she said to me then, he hasn't got a clue how Whitehall works. If he's just there by himself, he'll rattle around and the machine will chew him up and spit him out. He needs you and your team to go in and do it. After the election, though, her attitude was, Boris doesn't understand Whitehall. Someone is going to control the direction of the government. Why should it be Dominic? Why shouldn't it be me? And so you had me and Boris kind of going in different directions on the on the on where the government should go. And where the arguments over COVID, and then on top of it, you had this incredible wild card of his girlfriend saying, "I want a whole bunch of key people fired. I want Dominic out. I want my person to be in doing director of communications. All of this sort of thing." And that was the kind of final straw. And he then got into a very dark, difficult place with himself on that because he had her screaming at him upstairs in the flat at night. And me shouting at him downstairs in his office in the day and him going sort of increasingly mad, caught between the two forces. You said that the that Whitehall imploded when COVID happened. What do you mean by that? And COVID was this big, obviously once in a century, maybe, maybe more than that in the future, event that collided with all the all governments around the world. What was particularly awful about the British government's response, in your view? I mean, why did it show the system was completely unworkable at that point well you had, a, you had i think you had a sort of you had a combination you had the planning for it so the, bear in mind that this kind of pandemic was literally top of what's called the national risk register i.e the kind of list of bad things there's a list of bad things like you know terrorists putting anthrax in the water or whatever it might be the the government has contingency plans for this was the number one plan um, and the plan was obviously just completely, completely cockeyed. That was one thing. Secondly, the system around it for figuring it out as the crisis emerged just was completely broken in all in all sorts of ways and didn't understand that actually our plan and what the system was trying to do did not work for this kind of disease. You then had a whole bunch of people in, you had a bunch of key institutions like the civil contingencies team which was just completely overwhelmed and couldn't possibly cope. And the institutional wiring of the machine between the Department for Health, the Cabinet Office, Civil Contingencies, number 10, completely broke down. You didn't have core skills that you needed around the Cabinet Office, around the senior table. I had to bring in people from the outside. I had to kind of bodge together a network of people to give advice and help in March and April and try and bring people in. Whilst at the same time, the system, a lot of the system tried to push those people out and say, no, this is Whitehall. We don't, we can't just hire 
random people, however eminent they might be, in a, despite the fact it's a crisis. So you had all these different factors and senior, key senior people in senior jobs just completely un, uh, unfit for it. And then, of course, you had on top of that just the physical precautions. So I suggested in, in February, if you look around the world, lots of buildings for where the president or prime minister are are introducing testing to make sure that this kind of resilience of the core decision making. I was told, no, the cabinet office refuses to do this. Unfortunately, Boris agreed with the officials. It didn't happen. So on top of all of the other problems, you then had particularly badly in Britain, literally the wave swept right through the government system. So you had a bunch of people sitting all in unventilated rooms, no one wearing masks at the kind of leading edge of the COVID wave in central of London. And then you had obviously the prime minister himself literally on his deathbed in hospital at the, at the, at the height of the actual crisis. So that's when I say implosion, that's what I mean. One of my, one of my guys from the Vote Leave team was literally sitting, talking to the cabinet secretary, the most important official of the country, saying, what the hell do we do if the prime minister dies? And planning on, you know, having to bring the cabinet together. And, you know, that scene in The Godfather 3 where they bring everyone in and then put handcuffs on the door. They were joking to themselves, that's what we're going to have to do. They're going to have to put everyone in the cabinet room, handcuff the door and not let anybody out until they decide who the new prime minister was. Whilst waiting for news from the hospital on whether or not Boris was going to die. So when I say the state, you know, really imploded, that's what I mean. Okay, I, I take your point. Um, not gonna, not gonna argue with that. And so you quit. And where do you see the Boris government now? How is it? I mean, obviously, COVID is still going, even though it's it's becoming kind of endemic at some level, which we're going to have to have booster shots probably indefinitely at this point. But probably the worst is over, even in the UK. They locked out. To some extent, with the the vaccines, they did get them earlier than most other places. So that wasn't an implosion, right? But but you would argue, I think, that that was because we were out of we had a new attitude towards fixing these questions, and we didn't do the EU route. We actually Correct. did something. I think new. it's I think it's very noticeable that the, 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 the by far the biggest standout enterprise of in a positive sense in Britain was this vaccine task force. And there are two fundamental things about the vaccine task force which are which are relevant. First of all, me and the chief scientist, a guy called Patrick Valence, said that it had to be ripped out of the existing Whitehall machinery and a separate entity created. And that was critical because it meant that it wasn't paralyzed by all the normal rules and all the normal bullshit. It was, it was a separate entity. They could hire who they wanted from private sector, wherever. And therefore, it was a great mix of some brilliant officials and some brilliant people from the outside, and the authority of the prime minister to say, ignore all normal bullshit rules, all the normal laws, just do this as fast as you possibly can. Secondly, the fact that Brexit happened meant that we did not go along with the EU process that all the other EU member states did. Now, the official advice to the prime minister at the start of this was that we should go along and carry on with the EU system, despite the fact that we'd done Brexit. So you know 1,000% certainty that if we had not done Brexit, the advice would definitely have been the same, i.e. go along and do the EU thing. But of course, we'd done Brexit, and and therefore so two, two fundamental arguments came to play. One was because the rest of the system had failed so completely, 
me and others were able to say to the PM, look at your day. It's spent in one long disaster of everything failing. How can we possibly give this broken machinery in the Department for Health the vaccine program to run when everything that they're doing is, is you know, they're completely overwhelmed? And secondly, we've done Brexit. We don't have to go along with the bullshit EU plan, which is going to be the same as all the bullshit EU plans. It's going to take too long. It's going to be too bureaucratic and too many lawyers involved. And that kind of weird nexus of the implosion of the British state and having done Brexit, and actually, to be fair to him, Boris's character, his, the ruthless part of his character, a lot of people would have said, you know, we can't do it. It's so risky. We'll be such an outlier. You know, if we do the EU thing and it's a fiasco, well, we're all in the same boat. I won't get the blame. But if we don't do it and it's, you know, it goes wrong, then really in very, very big trouble. Boris, to be fair to him, when me, the cabinet secretary and the chief scientist sat him down and said, another guy, Lee Kane, the four of us said to him, it just seems open and shut, we should go this way. He just said, do it. And actually, it's sort of interesting that how significant the vaccine task force was. There was almost no kind of formal meetings about it, almost. The situation was so chaotic and it seemed so kind of open and shut to us. And Boris just responded straight away and just said, fight, fine, do it differently. So that's an interesting episode, I would say. Another interesting thing, though, is what's happened subsequently. Has Whitehall said, oh, let's learn from this. Let's figure out how to apply these lessons more generally. No, the exact opposite has happened. The vaccine task force itself has been steadily and slowly, steadily and surely brought back into the entropy, the normal entropy of Whitehall. So it didn't have the, vo the booster thing sorted out. It didn't work on variants properly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that tells you, I think, a very important thing, Andrew, just how hard it is to reform the modern bureaucratic administrative state in places like Britain and America. That even after once a century pandemic, even after something where the whole state collapses and the prime minister is nearly dead and over 100,000 people are dead, even then, the system doesn't say, OK, we've really got to change how we're operating around here. The system says, how do we get back to normal as soon as possible? Yeah. Do you feel at this point a regret that that isn't the project, that, that Boris couldn't have replicated that model? throughout his government in, in a way that would have really generated change? Yes, of course. I think it's, I think the whole, I think his choices in, in autumn last year, 2020, are obviously, I think for the country, very, very depressing because you had a government with a mandate to take the country down a very different path, to make a whole bunch of things, priorities like science and technology, which were completely vindicated then by the COVID shift to change how the state operated a majority so that he actually had the authority to push things through parliament and i think you know this could have been one of the great reforming governments that you know like the 1906 liberal government like 1945 atley like 1979 thatcher i think this would have been you know the next one in that series that people said holy shit you know that really changed an awful lot, awful lot of things as it is you know obviously brexit's a massive big deal by itself and there are some things that were on our list, on our, on our to-do list that are happening. You know, science funding is increasing. There, you know, we did change some interesting things in terms of how Whitehall works. For example, we created this great thing inside number 10 called the analytical private office, a kind of data science office inside the prime minister's structure in number 10, so that hopefully things like this will be handled better in the future. So there are some positive things, but overall, it's obvious that all the kind of energy and drive is gone. And Boris now is just sort of surrounded by courtiers, terrified to 
say anything to him in case him or his girlfriend executes them. Uh, there is no plan. There is no there is no grip. There's no plan. And even if there was a plan, it wouldn't matter because number 10 now has no grip at all of the Whitehall system. And Whitehall knows it, which is fatal for, for Boris, because they all know they can just they can just delay on everything and nothing will happen. And time Boris, time is the big weapon in with, with bureaucracies. Apart from those exercises in ruthlessness that you talk about, Boris doesn't like, does he not like confrontation with other people? I mean, he, he tends to want to be liked. Yeah, he hates it. Correct. And that may be why he grew tired of you constantly confronting him and, and dealing with, you know, unpleasant emotions. I think that's right. And I think also, you know, my, my, my sort of, my sort of, my sort of offer to him in January, in, in January 2020 was in lots of ways unappealing to a politician. It was at a moment when you've got huge power, where everyone is trying to be your friend. Now is the time to do a bunch of things which are difficult, which are going to be unpopular and are going to be are going to bring you in the crosshairs of a lot of powerful people. And our, my argument was, yes, that's tricky. But the upside of that is you'll go down in history as someone who really changed the whole game. And if you don't do that, yes, you'll have a much happier time in 2020. You'll certainly have more friends and you won't have a lot of people saying to you, what the fuck is you doing allowing Cummings to run around causing all this trouble? But then when you look back on it in 2024 and say, what have you actually done? There's not going to be very much done. And that's the reality of how the of how the system works now. You think that you can just say a few things and the system is going to go and do them. That ain't how it works. And therefore, if you're not prepared to take tough decisions now and make some enemies now, then you're not going to get things done in the medium term. And that's, a, I'm afraid, an unfortunate hard choice that you have to face and he didn't want to face that yeah how durable however is the political realignment in which the working class north to some extent becomes part of a conservative demographic coalition at what point to 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 echo a point not to put a red flag in front of a wall here that George Osborne once made to me, but swapping Hartlepool for Tunbridge Wells is probably not even um, Tunbridge Wells. Is this. <laughs> but there's a, there's a risk there for Tories. You're aiming for a working class vote that has historically always voted Labour, that seems to be in your camp. Boris does seem to be trying to placate that group and seems to be concerned about keeping that going. Is it doable on the current policy mixture that Boris has set? It's a very tricky, very, very important, but tricky question to answer. I think so. There's obviously some big trends which are happening demographically, which will rumble along for a while, kind of regardless of what Boris or Starmer do, right? So, for example, educational polarization is something which you can see demographically happening in America, Britain, and across the Western world. That ain't going to stop i don't think anytime soon regardless of what happens in westminster or what policies are pursued and that will affect electoral coalitions to a certain extent for sure but i don't i don't i think that i think it's all i think it's all just all to play for i think it all depends how the parties how the parties work now they can they can go in different directions brexit is a sort of huge bomb that's gone off at the center of the system but lots of its effects will be delayed it's uh, the combination of brexit and what we did in 2019 creating this kind of combination coalition 
where we win a bunch of seats that the Tories either have never won or haven't won in sort of 50 or 100 years. In some sense, it is fragile, and you're right, and Osborne's right too to say this is potentially fragile and it could it could go wrong. There's no doubt at all that if Boris keeps going the way he has done in the last few weeks, you can easily see um, the Midlands the seats going and the Tories being pushed back into southern England and completely gone from Scotland. That's very easy to imagine happening at, at the next election. However, another tricky thing is, and it's connected, I think, to, to some of the things that you've been writing about, about the Democrats, is Brexit and what we did in 2019 also gives the, the Labour Party a huge strategic problem, in some ways a harder problem, because for it to win, it has to keep a bunch of people who are in, in London who are richer and much better educated and have a whole bunch of attitudes which are completely out of whack with England outside the M25 and also with Scotland. So he needs to keep them on board. It needs to recapture the Midlands of, of England, or at least some of it. And really, it has to try and make inroads in Scotland as well, if it's going to get any kind of serious majority. And that is a genuinely hard problem. One of the reasons why, why I thought that the whole Brexit thing was possible was because I thought, if you do Brexit, not only do you sort of set this bomb off in terms of the administrative state and policy, but you also disrupt the electoral coalition. And if you then... If you then reprogram the Conservative Party in the right way, it's actually extremely difficult for the Labour Party to recover from this. Now, if you had a Tory party which actually did go down the vote leave to do list, if it did actually systematically attack a whole bunch of privileges of the rich, if it whacked a whole bunch of planning laws, if it was very aggressive on deregulation, if it was getting growth going, if it was also very pro skills. It was also really attacking incentives in the health system and seen to actually care about the NHS, unlike the Tory party of the last 30 years. If it had a whole new agenda around the startup world, science, education, universities, VC, you know, all these things coming together, you could imagine this very powerful alliance of, of conservative, traditional conservative voters in the South, allied with working class, low middle class voters in the, in the Midlands, and kind of making inroads all over the place. Versus a Labour Party, which is fractured and, and, and is this terrible position of, well, if it does things which are popular in most of the country, say on crime or immigration, it immediately alienates its now base of educated lawyers back in London. So that was that was part of the thinking that we had when we were doing vote leave about what, what could happen. But, you know, the world's extremely complicated. Who knows if that if that if, if that if it could work out in that direction? At the moment, Boris is trying to screw it all up. But it could, you could also imagine a situation in which probably the base case at the moment is that, of course, Starmer is completely rubbish as well. So Boris is kind of stalled and isn't going anywhere. But Starmer has absolutely no message of any kind and can't get one. It's clearly a dud. So you can imagine a situation where at the next election, the Tories lose a lot of the red wall. Labour kind of recovers enough to get rid of the Tory majority and Boris either has a very small majority or a hung parliament, in which case he's dead, you know, very, the Tory party will, if he's even there by then, which is no, by no means guaranteed, he's then curtains for him. But Labour also not having any kind of majority. So Britain could then have this odd position again of hung parliament, both parties kind of lost. That wouldn't be at all surprising in, 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 in two or three years time. 
Where do you see yourself headed, Dominic? You, you're, you're now the, the, the lion in winter, as it were. You're in your, the wilderness years, maybe. I don't know, the wilderness months. What, what are you thinking of doing now? What, I mean, what are you, what are you? I mean, obviously we, and I should tell readers this, you're on Substack, which is well worth looking at. If you want to understand in more depth Dominic's inquiry into the administrative state, how to reinvent it, then I thoroughly recommend going to the Substack. We link to it from time to time. And I know Substack is a great career. <laughs> I'm not, not knocking it, but I imagine you have other you have other plans or thoughts about the future. What do you think see yourself doing in the next few well, years? So I've never I mean I've never had any kind of sort of proper career of any kind. I've always just been I've basically sort of bounced between periods where I just hang around reading and talking to people and periods of kind of intense projects. I never planned to do that, just sort of how things have panned out. And at the moment I'm, 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 as you say, I'm writing my Substack. I'm reading a lot. I'm talking to people, just sort of having a think, really, about where the world's going, and and trying to think how I could usefully, like, what can I usefully build now to some some kind of constructive thing that that I could build or help other people build. But I'm just sort of just just chatting and reading at the moment. Sounds quite lovely, to be honest with you. Have you have you have you are you Interested in the United States at this point and what's happening here? Are you engaged in that debate? Yes, I, I am. I am interested. I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't really watch much of the last campaign because I was so um, enmeshed in the in the horror in, in in Downing Street. But I have looked at it a bit recently, and I wrote about this actually on Substack a, a month or so ago. It seems to me that, or it seemed to me a month ago anyway, that the chance that people were kind of underest overestimating Biden and underestimating the chances that. Trump could, ease, could 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 win again, and it just seems also that the Republican Party seems to be a bit brain dead in all sorts of ways. I don't see. I mean, I haven't looked at it carefully, and maybe there are some great people there that I haven't noticed, but I don't see someone setting out a new path. I don't know if that's because people are terrified of of Trump whacking them if they kind of you know if someone starts aggressively setting out a new thing. But to me, so from my perspective is Biden's rubbish. Biden will stay rubbish. Trump also was right about a few things, wrong about lots of things, but he didn't understand Whitehall, didn't understand power. He annoyed the swamp, but he couldn't actually do anything with the swamp. And another Biden-Trump contest in 2024 strikes me as just terrible, terrible, terrible for the world and for America. So the best, the thing I would like to see is someone now getting, getting going on the Republican side, not waiting till the midterms, and, you know, because otherwise it's a terrible danger of midterms go, Biden's clearly in big trouble. Trump then Trump announces I'm running again. No one's built anything. Trump's a massive front runner. He's locked in. And then we're all just sitting, waiting for 18 months, watching Trump Biden and we're a fucking nightmare. For that to be avoided, though, obviously weird things could happen. Who knows what Trump's health is and whatnot. But if he goes for it, he's at the moment, he's in a very powerful position to win. And it's at least 50-50, you know, in general election 2024. What's needed is a Republican to set out now and to start building a machine, to start building. Here's a plan. Here's a message. Here's a machine. Here's a network. Here's an alternative picture of where the country should be going. And the sooner that work is done and the sooner that project appears, then the more chance it's got of being able to... to to be in a position where if Trump does go for it, then at least there's some competition on the Republican side and some force that people can rally around, which is not just some terrible old establishment candidate. You know, we don't we don't want to have to be 
was it Trump or was it some old country club Republican who also wants to be friends with, you know, the Pentagon and Goldman Sachs? That would also be shit. But I don't know. I mean, you you watch this a thousand times more carefully and understand it a thousand times better than me. Do you what, what do you think? Is there any chance of this happening or are you pessimistic? Oh, I do think there's some intellectual life out there that's beginning to think about some of these things. I do think there are some ideas percolating at places like the Manhattan Institute, for example, which could be positive in terms of constructing an argument. When you talk about Boris's obsession with media and media stories, you then think of a president who just watched cable news every day and most of his most of his politics were driven off literally news cycles within hours, exactly. which is obviously not concentrating. Concentrate. I honestly think that you could cobble something together if you have a candidate capable of focusing entirely on policy and not his own personality and focusing on those areas like Youngkin has done that really have on crime, immigration, racial extremism in schools and so on and so forth, wokeness in general, I think it could do very well. I think Youngkin is a fascinating possibility of that, even though he's not that mm. dynamic. And we'll see. He also ran on some basic good government proposals, reforms. I, Interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I hope somebody does. I fear the way in which the sort of cult around Trump and the media frenzy around him has kind of made him a permanent fixture, uh, which worries me a great deal. But I do think that it's up for grabs, as you say, and the right mm. could grab it. It doesn't look to uh, me as if the Democrats are. I think one one thing where I think I, I differ from a lot of people who work professionally on campaigns is I think that while it's true that a lot of the way that traditional politics, traditional politicians communicate policy is not appealing to people, the kind of reports they publish, the speeches they give and whatnot, don't grab people very well, very well. And that means that a lot of campaign professionals, particularly in America, basically take the cynical view of public doesn't care about policy. It's just all about, you know, the 30 second TV ad or the 15 second Facebook video. Now, I do think, though, that actually my experience of looking very carefully at people is that there's lots of voters who really are interested in policy, much more interested in policy than a lot of professionals in politics now think. They don't like the way that the normal parties do it. They don't like the way that normal politicians talk about it, but they are interested in policy. And they're certainly not interested in the way that the media presents it either. And, and the, the way that the media portrays, you know, some, some either, a, you know, someone in Congress or an MP here stands up and gives a speech, then the way that CBS or the BBC then present that on the news is so awful that that also turns off people and people don't pay attention to what the guys say. But people do care about policy, and there is a much greater opportunity, I think, for, for someone who actually engages. Like, the more and more that Washington people are drawn into the madness of CNBC and Fox and Twitter and all of that, that the more, ironically, the greater scope there is, I think, for someone who physically and intellectually and emotionally moves away from it and just goes and camps out in the middle of the country and spends their time there talking to regular people about what they care about. If you go there with people who can organize, you could see some very interesting things emerge, I think. That's fascinating, Dominic. I am immensely grateful for you taking the time to talk so candidly and in a free range fashion with me. Um, big admirer here of your work and thank you so much for coming and chatting today, I'm sure. Thank you so uh, much, Andrew. It's been a great, been a great pleasure.
I've enjoyed it too, and I'd love to. And I love your Substack, and, and maybe we can do it again some point in the future. I think we might. I think we might. Will you give my love to Mary? <laughs> I will do. <laughs> All right. All best. Take Thanks care. so much, Tom. See you. Bye bye. Bye bye.